0: Welcome everybody to another episode of Positive Talk Radio. I am so excited again. I get excited easily, but not in this particular case because I get to talk to somebody who I'm I'm quite literally talking all the way around the world and back again because she lives in the Seattle area, which is where I live, and uh, she is quite an amazing an amazing author coming up. Uh, she's got a book coming out in January. Her name is Lisa. Thompson. She is a mountain climber, which is something that is so foreign to me. I would have absolutely no idea uh, how the, <laughs> that all works. But uh, Lisa, welcome to the podcast. How are you today?
1: Thanks, Kevin. I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: How did you get into mountain climbing?
1: <laughs> well, it started in Seattle, which is where we both are today. Um, I did not, however, grow up in a mountaineering state. Um, I grew up in Illinois, so the highest point in that state is 120 feet, and it has a name. It's so prominent. So I didn't, needless to say, I did not grow up um, in a, an environment where I read about you know pioneering mountaineers like Sir Edmund Hillary or Tenzing Norgay. Um, I wasn't even really that athletic, if I'm being honest. I, you know, for example, like didn't make the volleyball team when I was in junior high. <laughs> But I was, um, I loved the outdoors. I always loved being outside. And uh, when I was small, we had a nice big yard. And so I'd climb trees and explore in the cornfields near my house. Um, So I liked that. And I liked proving people wrong. And those two things sort of collided um, shortly after I moved to Seattle. I came here for a job and was the only female at my level in that position And the guys, uh, my peers, who were good guys, not to take anything at all away from them, um, but they would go climbing regularly because climbing is sort of, you know, Kevin, part of the culture in Seattle. Like it's, you know, we see the mountains when it's clear out, we see Mount Rainier, um, but they're certainly all around us. And so uh, my peers would go climbing uh, most weekends and they never asked me to join them. And (sighs) instead of doing like the logical thing, which would have been to say, "Hey, that sounds really fun. I would love to come with you. Can I?" I'm sure they would have said yes. Instead, I got really upset about it. I got frustrated, and it really wasn't that I wanted to learn about climbing. I, what I wanted was to be a part of their group. I wanted them to see me as capable, sure. and I felt like you know their their um, their adventures on the weekend would be a way for me to do that. So, um, instead I just started climbing on my own.
0: Very, very nice. Well, then you would be aware because you live in Seattle, that there's a c- club called the Mountaineers club.
1: There is, I'm a member of the Mountaineers.
0: Uh, did you know I was the building services manager there once t- at one point?
1: At the the facility in Sandpoint Way. Uh,
0: it wasn't there at that time. It was, uh, right there on, uh, the base of, uh, Of uh, queen anne hill
1: oh very nice
0: yes i think i have they moved
1: yes now they're at the mountaineers headquarters now are at same point way
0: yeah i we stand in my the company i worked for stands stands in infamy there because uh we my bosses were so kind to the restaurant workers that they organized into a union
1: (laughs) and and
0: shut down the uh the uh, restaurant and so oh, the no. restaurant so but uh, yeah no so i was there for a little bit and i met uh what the i know you're gonna his name i had it there for a second um lou and oh,
1: uh, lou whitaker yeah lou whitaker, yes. <laughs> that's amazing good for you
0: and uh and stuff so i, I enjoyed that but i'm and i can't think of if you have never been to Washington State, and, and this is a worldwide broadcast, so a lot of people haven't, we got lots of hills, lots of medium hills, large hills. We have a mountain called uh, Mount Si that yeah. uh, is like a five mile hike up, and I almost fell off of that mountain when I was a kid, <laughs> uh, going across a uh, ice field on on my backpack and and st- anyway. So, but so you started climbing by yourself. That that yeah. That was hard to do.
1: Well, so this is great so I can I can sort of uh, name drop mountains a little bit with you since you're local. So I started I climbed Mount Pilchuck. Oh, yes. The north of Seattle. That was the first um, mountain in air quotes that I climbed, which is really hiking, but for a midwesterner like myself, it was it was a big deal. And it I was. remember getting home and calling my father and telling him that I my father was still in Illinois, I just climbed a mountain today. And of course, you know, he thought that was incredible. Um, But that was where I got started. I just, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I just started hiking and, you know, hiking up the mountains in the Cascades and eventually signed on with a guide company to attempt Mount Rainier. That was in 2008. Um, We did not summit. The weather um, got bad at about 11,000 feet and I and our whole team turned around and I was very happy to turn around because I was not really ready. Um, How long
0: did you prepare for that? Because I know that there, there there's a protocol that you really need to do uh, to, oh, yeah. to get into that kind of a shape. How long did it take you to get into that shape?
1: Yeah, so I trained for about six months. And and I take, we can talk, I could talk all day about training because now I've started my own company called Alpine Athletics, where I I train and coach mountaineers to prepare. So I took it very seriously, even back then. Um, But I was still pretty clueless. Like I had this huge purple backpack that weighed, you know, an unreasonable amount of weight, typical backpacks to go up Mount Rainier weigh about 40 pounds. Mine probably weighed 50 because I probably had like a full jar of peanut butter in there or something. I had, I just didn't know what I was doing. But I was very, very driven. Um, and and I like the idea of a challenge. and
0: Apparently so.
1: Apparently, yeah. <laughs> and so we didn't summit that first year. But I got enough of a taste of, you know, this mix of mental and physical challenge that you experience when you climb a mountain. And I wanted more of that. So I came back the next year and I did summit. And, um, just that feeling of standing at fourteen thousand feet as you know, the sun is just starting to to split from the horizon and seeing colors that I had never seen before was something that really was awe inspiring, like in the traditional definition of that word. Um, and I wanted to keep doing it. I wanted to keep experiencing nature in that way. And I wanted to keep pushing myself mentally and physically. And if I'm being honest, I wanted to keep proving people wrong as well.
0: <laughs> you you have got the will of, of a very strong person to be able Thank you. To, to do that. Because uh, to fast forward, and we're going to talk about it, you've climbed K2. You've climbed every major mountain in in this country for sure um and and uh, many around the world and uh, and somewhere in there and I, I suspect that it helped you when you discovered that you had cancer.
1: Yeah, so that was in 2015 and my mountaineering career um, was just really starting to to blossom. I had climbed um, Rainier a couple of times I had climbed, Uh, Denali in Alaska. That's the highest mountain in North America.
0: Now is that the former Mount McKinley?
1: Former Mount McKinley. That's right. Very good. Yep. And so I felt like, you know, I think I'm ready to climb in the Himalaya. And the Himalaya is this, you know, huge mountain range that bisects Asia. And it's really special for high altitude mountaineers because most of the highest mountains in the world Reside there. And when we say high uh, in mountaineering terms, we're talking about mountains that are higher than 26,000 feet or 8,000 meters. And there are only 14 mountains in the world that reach that altitude. And so for me in 2015, to be ready to attempt one of them was a really big deal. I felt like, and I I really did feel ready. And so I, I set this goal, I began training. And I had a routine mammogram one day and, you know, I I was a bit cocky, right? I remember going to that doctor's appointment before work and thinking like, I just check the box, do this once a year. Um, I was 42 years old. I'm an athlete. You know, I, I take care of myself. I floss my teeth. I do those things that we, we are led to believe will keep us healthy. And so getting a cancer diagnosis, um, was absolutely devastating to me and as it is to everyone who's heard those words directed at them or someone they love. Um, and I, as you said, Kevin, I'm a very determined person. And so I was quite determined not to let cancer dictate my climbing priorities, which in hindsight is (laughs) not something I recommend. Um, but it did, you know, this climb, which was planned for August of that year, I was diagnosed in February, Um, kept me motivated. It kept me um, really in tune with my body and what I was capable of and what I was going through. And mentally, it gave me, you know, something to strive for and something that would really just pull me out of bed. If I didn't feel like getting out of bed, it would, you know, keep me positive because I just maintained this picture in my mind of me climbing that mountain. And that is what on many, many days when I didn't, didn't feel like moving or talking or, you know, doing anything. Um, what kept me going?
0: Because I, I assume that at that point you had to go through chemo and, and all of that. And which Yeah. Is-
1: I actually did not go through chemo. I'm very, very fortunate um, that my cancer was resolved with surgery and medication and so it didn't have to go through chemo, thankfully. Oh, um, thank goodness, because that can be yes. devastating to the body. Yes, absolutely devastating. Absolutely. Um, so I'm fortunate in, in that regard. And fortunate that I had an amazing medical team since we're in Seattle. I'll name them. So Swedish Medical Center. Um, yep. Just phenomenal. And um, oh, so much to that team. And, you know, we'll talk about it in a bit. But when I when I stood on the top of Mount Everest, it was gratitude for everyone that had gotten me that far and certainly my healthcare team was part of that.
0: You know it's amazing to me because you when you're talking about the the height of a mountain, Mount Rainier's uh fourteen thousand and change. Yep. You're talking about mountains that are almost twice as tall as Mount Rainier.
1: Yeah. So Mount Rainier is 14,410 feet and Mount Everest is 29,032 feet.
0: So twice, even more than twice. Yeah. Yeah. So so you see, see, when we talk about mountain climbing and that sort of thing, I think about mountain climbing and I think snow, ice, wind, cold, you must think about something completely different than that.
1: Well, I think about all those things too, (laughs) but there's something about that combination of rock and ice and snow and wind and cold weather that motivates me, that makes me want to test myself in that environment and test myself with that mountain. Um, like I mentioned, I take training very, very seriously. And I always want to make sure that my skill and ability match with that mountain is going to require of me. And those, you know, those aspects of the mountains push me, push me to be my best.
0: Well, even just setting up your camp and setting up your tent and and getting getting into your 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 tent and your sleeping bag and all that stuff to stay alive, yeah. That, to me, that's that's like no. I'm I'm sorry. I'll I'll, I'll wait for the helicopter trip to go up and that stuff because it's. But I so I admire your intestinal fortitude and your drive. Where did that drive come from?
1: Well, it's been a lot of therapy for me to sort this out, um, but, you know, my, I grew up with a very sort of in a very strict household. Um, my parents were very hardworking and the way they showed love was to keep working hard. And, you know, they weren't often around when I was a kid and I was, I just really, really wanted their love. I wanted to feel it in a way that made sense to me. And... um you know, looking back on that, that pushed me that desire to prove myself, um, pushed me to do a lot of things. It pushed me to be the first person in my family to go to college. Um, It pushed me to leave my small farming community that raised me, um, pushed me to study engineering and ultimately to climb mountains. And so I think, you know, there, there are two sides to everything that sort of drive at times has been overwhelming for me. At times it's gotten me into trouble when I just will not, you know, sort of the Churchill definition of never quitting um, isn't always the right one in a personal relationship. And so it's definitely gotten me into trouble, Um, but it also, you know, is something now that I see as a tool, something that I can use in a situation like climbing where I need to dig really deep or I need to work really hard to accomplish a goal and so I'm, I'm grateful for just about everything in my life. I'm grateful for my childhood and my family and the way I was raised because it gave me sort of that sense of perseverance and resilience.
0: For what it's worth, I think that we all need therapy from our youth. From- <laughs> yes, we do. Because <laughs> we each, you know, each into our own self have got issues that have come to us in adulthood that started when we were wee yeah. little ones.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's really true. And I'm I'm grateful that I have those resources available to me because they've made a big difference in my life.
0: Absolutely. And by the way, you're a driven person, so you're now you've got a company. You've also got a book that's coming. Let's, yes. Let's, let's first of all let's talk about your company that that yeah. is. Uh, because I may need to go there just to get into shape rather Absolutely. than uh, Absolutely. I climbing anything, Yeah. As long and, and when, Mount, when global warming gets to the point where Mount Rainier is dirt, I'll I'll go there, baby.
1: <laughs> It'll probably be a tiny little hill then. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Exactly. So tell us about your company and your vision.
1: Yeah. So I um as I said, I've always taken preparation for climbing really seriously. And to me, that preparation is more than just physical, there's a, a really significant mental component to climbing any mountain. Um, and there's also what I call the tactical side of preparation, which is understanding the route and having your gear really dialed and just being prepared and very well-rounded. And so I realized uh, a few years into my climbing career that I I took this approach much more seriously than a lot of other people. and. It became even for me personally, sort of my secret sauce. I was fortunate to work with a, a very skilled mountaineering coach as well for many years. And so I realized that I saw this, this idea of preparation differently than a lot of other mountaineers. And so in 2018, um, actually at K2 Base Camp, I wrote out the content for a website and you know sort of the outline of how business would work. Um, I had trained some friends prior to that, but it was in 2018 that I really took it seriously and kicked it off and created Alpine Athletics. And so today, I'm fortunate that I've helped more than 100 people summit their their mountains, hit their mountaineering goals. Um, and my my objective is to share everything that I've learned in the mountains with the people that I coach, and to make sure you know we don't nobody has unlimited time. Most of the people that I coach are you know, working a very full career, have a family, have so much going on in their lives. And they just, they want to maximize their time training so that they can be successful when they're in the mountains. And so that's my job. My job is to make sure that you do all the hard work up front so that when you get to the mountain, you're completely prepared, ready for the challenges of that peak and fit physically in order to take them on. And it's really, really rewarding to me. So i you know, this is Everest season, so uh, Everest summits occurred earlier this month, and I was fortunate that three of my climbers summited, and it's just the coolest experience to, to get those text messages from them and see their summit photos and know that I've played a part in helping them get there.
0: Do you ever have a conversation with somebody that uh, goes like this? You know, you haven't really done everything I've asked you to do, and you're not prepared. <laughs> and so consequently, I'm going to recommend that you not go.
1: Very, very rarely. Um, the people that I work with are very motivated. You know, they've invested a lot financially and personally in the peaks that they're endeavoring to climb. And so it's unusual that someone um, someone isn't putting in the work. But there have been little times where I need, you know, part of my job is to nudge right into like i a very data driven person. Um, and I, I like to just sort of let those, you know, I'm, I'm recording everything that the athletes I work with do um, via their smart watches. And so I like to let the data sort of speak for itself and say, like, this is where ideally, you know, someone climbing Rainier should be here. And this is where you are. And I think these are the things we need to do to get you there.
0: I'm willing to bet that your your nudge is more like a, a push for some. folks.
1: <laughs> well, I like to say that I meet the athlete where they are. Because some people come to me and they really have like maybe they just watched 14 Peaks on Netflix and they're like, I want to do that. And they don't know anything about climbing or other people have attempted Everest before and not been successful and realize that their training was part of the delta. And so I like to really tailor sort of my input and, you know, certainly my training plans for that athlete, because I think that's how we're the most successful together.
0: Well, you certainly have a lot of credibility Thank you. because because it's like um, somebody says. So, why should I hire you as a coach? Well, I've climbed K two and I've <laughs> summited K two. I've summited Everest. I've summited Mount McKinley, and so I'm good at what I do. And <laughs> and you're able to. Um, but the, the other the, the other aspect of climbing a mountain that I wanted to touch on was the, the you know the unfortunate thing about. There are people that are still on K2 that have been gone and dead for a long time. Uh, It's a dangerous thing to do.
1: Yes, it is a very dangerous thing to do. Um, And K2 in particular um, is notorious for being dangerous is notorious for being a deadly mountain. Um, One of the first people to summit it coined it the savage mountain that tries to kill you. and, I felt that every day that I was there. Um, As I said, I, you know, I felt very in sync with Mount Everest. I felt like, you know, it was challenging, but the mountain and I were working together as a team and I did not feel that way on K2. Um, I felt like every day that mountain was trying to kill me in the form of rock slides or avalanches or the death, you know, witnessing the deaths of other climbers. And it really forced me to confront my fear. Um, There was a point on K2, there's a section, which is probably the crux of the mountain. The crux is the uh, the part of a climb that's the most challenging. And on K2, that's called the Black Pyramid. And um, if you can imagine, it's, you're 25,000 feet. And the rock there is very cobbled, sort of black, cobbly rock. It's very slick with ice and melting snow. And I'm attached to the mountain with my harness and a climbing rope, um, breathing bottled oxygen. I'm wearing a bulky down suit and crampons, which are not the ideal gear for rock climbing. But given the terrain of a mix of rock and ice, that's that's what we were wearing. Um, and it was incredibly challenging climbing. And I I wanted to quit. I, you know, hung there and let my mind just play out this whole scenario of how I could be back at base camp in a couple of days. I could be eating cake. I could be the next day after that. I could be in Islamabad, sleeping in an actual bed, using an actual toilet. Like all I just let all those things play out and um, really wanted to turn around. And I, in that moment, uh, just paused, took some deep breaths and said, Is this all that I'm capable of? And my honest answer was no, it wasn't. I knew I was capable of more. I was just tired and I was frustrated and I was embarrassed that I was climbing slowly. And I had to overcome all of those things plus fear in order to keep moving forward.
0: That's remarkable. (laughs) That's Because I would have said, (laughs) No, that's it, babe. I'm done. <laughs> as you're, as you're lying. So, but I wanted to ask you because you mentioned it, and uh, I, yeah, and you're you are writing a book, and that's going to be coming out, and I want to talk about that in a minute. But I yep. just assume part of that book is you're going to talk about the climbs and some of the people who lost their lives that were either in your in your group or in another group around you.
1: Yeah. Um, so there is, you know, death is. A potential outcome of climbing any mountain. Um it's inherently dangerous. And
0: before I've convinced I, me I'm not going. What's that? You've convinced me I'm not going.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm really selling it, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Come along. It's like shackleton. Just come along. You might die. It'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um and I really had to like in all seriousness, especially before I went to K2, I had to sort of sit with that. Um, I had recently beat cancer. My father had had died of cancer. Um, he was diagnosed when I was climbing Mount Everest and died about a month after I got home. And there was certainly questions in you know my circle of friends and and people that I respect about why I would do this. why would I climb a mountain where one in four people die, especially after just beating cancer and fighting for my own life, especially after just watching my father lose his. And um, there were very, very dark moments where I sat and just had to really contemplate why I was doing this and to make sure I was doing it for the right reasons. Um, and ultimately it was, there was just this little voice inside of me that said that you're capable of doing this. And that it was important to show what, especially women, can do in the mountains. Not a lot of women have climbed K two. I'm only the second American woman to summit it. Um, maybe there's half a dozen women that have summited it ever. And so it was important to me to just show what was possible, even after, you know, the the heartbreak of cancer and everything that I had been through uh, to get to that point. So it was hard for me to wrestle with the dark side of that. But there was a part of me who, that felt that I was capable of doing it successfully.
0: So which is easier climbing a mountain or writing a book?
1: I jokingly say to my friends that writing about mountaineering is harder than actually climbing a mountain.
0: I I don't doubt it.
1: Yeah. Um, I started writing when I had cancer. It was a very, you know, it was journaling. It was a very cathartic process for me in a way to just sort of stay positive and keep thoughts, you know, keep thoughts positive and sort of get rid of all the negativity. Um, And through that process of cancer, I realized a lot of things about myself. I realized that life is fragile and I realized that it's up to us to define the lives that we will live. Um, And so I chose to, at that time in my marriage, I uh, also paused my corporate career and decided to focus full-time on climbing and being in the mountains. And all of those changes that occurred during that part of my life really became cathartic for me. Um, and then subsequently, somebody in K2 felt like I had overcome a lot of obstacles. I had faced a lot of fears and sometimes gracefully, sometimes not, work through them. And I wanted to share that with people. Um, I wanted you know, to share what I had learned and what I had overcome in order to hopefully help somebody who's struggling with their own obstacle, whatever that might be. Um, I'm fortunate now to be able to speak to audiences. And the best, absolutely the best feeling is when someone comes up to me after and says, I'm going through this thing with you know, my family or my kids or whatever, my health, and I realize now that I can get through it. And so my, you know, my hope for Finding Elevation when it's launched in January is that it, it gives that to people. It is a climbing memoir at its core, so it will appeal, appeal to readers who are interested in the mountains and in climbing, but it's also a really deep and personal exploration into human motivation and risk-taking
0: well and it's also a um and obviously the book isn't out yet so i'm this is my assumption anyway is that it is also a um an illustration of what's possible yes of when when somebody makes a decision that uh number one you had a bunch of strikes against you you're like you're like Oh come on! You're a woman. You can't do that. And the women can't aren't, don't climb K two, sure.
1: um,
0: you know, and and all of those. But it transcends mountain climbing. It trans it 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 is in every aspect of our lives. We all have talents, and if we believe that we can rise to the 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 best use of our talent and can end can make it, we can. Yeah. If, if we don't believe that, we will. We can't. <laughs> So this is just a great example of of the book. And and I I envision that you're gonna the book's gonna do very well. And uh your speaking career because of the book is gonna do very well.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that endorsement very
0: much. Well, and and I'm not coming to get into shape with you. I (laughs) would scare me. But no.
1: (laughs) It's not the first time I've heard that, Kevin.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that. But uh, but uh, so let me ask you, do you feel proud of yourself?
1: I am proud of myself. Yeah, that's as well, you should be. That's an important question. Um, I am proud of myself and I, when I, summited K2, I, you know, I, there was a point where I'm climbing and I looked up and I am on the snow slope and there was a lot of fresh snow. So as I'm stepping, um, just about every step is breaking even though other people had stepped there before me and sort of sliding and stepping and not making a lot of upward progress. And I looked up sort of in the midst of that frustration and I saw the point where the sky and the snow met. And right there, I saw bright colors and I knew that those are people's down suits were people standing there. And that meant it was the summit. And, um, I wanted to cry so badly in that moment just you know it's all this emotion of everything that had gone into getting me that far um and I you know sort of reprimanded myself and said like keep it together um and you know 30 or 40 minutes later I stood on the summit and um that was an accomplishment that I will forever feel proud of and grateful for and that gratitude i think is something that i want to take with me every day um because it's so easy sometimes in our lives to to look past that but those feelings those emotions were very special for me
0: i have to remark i just finished a podcast before our podcast and the subject of the book that they were talking about he had gone to uruguay no paraguay paraguay and he was, and he put to, put together a leper colony. He took his family down there. He was a doctor and he he did incredible things over the course of his life. Wow! And I asked them because he, he died at 94, 96. And I said, at the end of it, was he proud of himself? And they said, no, he didn't understand all the things that he had done in his life. Huh. And I and it was like that is terrible, it's heartbreaking. I, yeah, it really is. So, so my advice to you is: whatever you're doing, do it to the best of your ability, and be proud of yourself.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's sad to hear.
0: <laughs> and but but you, 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 so. What's next? You've got other plans. What's next for you? You've you've got your book that's coming out. Are you going on a book tour? What are you gonna do?
1: So hopefully book tour, we'll see COVID-wise how that plays out. But I would love, I've been doing some readings virtually and I love I love doing that. So hopefully we can work in a tour as well. Um I, you know, I'm fortunate to have climbed many mountains in my career and I'm I am continuing to climb. Um, after somebody in K2, I really don't endeavor to climb anything that deadly or that challenging again. Um, Like I said, I feel grateful to have summited it on my first attempt and to have survived. And um, now what is more important to me is really to give back to, you know, these mountain villages and countries that I've just fallen in love with. I've been fortunate to spend a lot of time in Nepal and a lot of time in Pakistan. And So along with um, two other female mountaineering friends, we've started a nonprofit, uh, which is called Anything is Possible. And our mission um, is to prove through mountaineering that anything is possible for women in the mountains. And so um, we are raising funds to support women's education in Nepal. I was shocked to learn that. For women, Nepalese women over the age of 15, something like 48% have never had any kind of education um, at all, which is hard, hard to imagine, you know, sitting where we are in the United States. And it's especially shocking to me because women, you know, really are the heart of those communities, the heart of the family. And so we want to support every year, at least one woman to, um, to realize whatever her educational dream is, if she wants to, learn accounting. If she wants to open a tea house, if, you know, she wants to learn to be a seamstress, whatever that is, we want to support that. And um, in terms of climbing, we're uh, employing only women on our team. So sorry, Kevin, even though you're going to get in shape, you won't be able to join us this fall. That's
0: all right. That makes me feel good right there. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, But it's important to us to show, you know, what women can do when we support one another and when we work hard as a team. So, our entire team. And I I don't know if this has ever happened. There have been other women only teams, but I know that at least some of them have been supported by men. And so we are, you know, every single person, like the cooks, uh, the women carrying loads, fixing the rope, everyone will be female on our team. And um, our goal is to, you know, really support them um, and, you know, to sort of pay homage to the work that they do in the mountains in Nepal. So we're super excited. We're climbing a mountain called Cholotsi, uh, which is in Nepal. It's 6,800 meters. And um yeah, if you want to learn more, you can check out my website on Lisa Climbs. But uh, we're planning to go in October.
0: Your website again is
1: lisaclimes.com.
0: LisaClimbs.com. Lisa and the Website for the nonprofit. If somebody wanted to, you can link it.
1: It's anything is possible dot today, but it's all linked from Lisa. Collins.
0: Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. And and you're. I wanted to talk to you because, or ask you about this because I've heard about Sherpas and and the and the folks that are there. Are they as hardy as I've heard? Oh they my are? gosh!
1: <laughs> Unbelievably strong and humble and fun. Um, yeah, so, you know, where my backpack, I mean, I'm a small woman, I I weigh 112 pounds. Um, and some of the shirt are the same size as me. And if my backpack weighed 35 pounds, theirs weighed 65 pounds, and they were moving faster than me in the mountains, um, and doing, you know, carrying super heavy loads up the hill before breakfast. Um, it is you know, I know there have been a lot of documentaries about Sherpa and their contribution to mountaineering. And I think it's really important to recognize what that community does for those of us that endeavor to climb in the Himalaya. Um, I could not climb without their support. And I think it's really important to recognize that it takes a team for someone like me who's not a professional climber. It takes a team of people, um, most of which are Sherpa to, to fix the route, to carry loads, and you know, there's all kinds of talk about whether that the aesthetic of climbing that way. That's my choice of how I climb. Um, and I think it's important to recognize all the support that goes into making that happen.
0: So, when you're climbing a mountain, <laughs> I, I'm I'm fixated on this. <laughs> when you're climbing a mountain, are you cold? Are you warm? Are you hot? Are you? Do you have to worry about sweating? Do you have to monitor how fast you're moving so that? You don't sweat, then it freeze, and then you get hypothermia and all of that kind of stuff. Does that all play into it?
1: All those things are happening, probably all at the same time. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, so I, you know, obviously mountains are a cold environment, um, big mountains anyway, and I. But ironically, I have probably been hot in the mountains more than I have been cold. Um, And that could be because I perform better when I'm cold. When I get hot and overheated, I just tend to lose energy very, very quickly. Um, So it becomes a constant for me, sort of a constant monitoring of my temperature and my body and making sure that I'm taking care of it. And the sweating thing that you mentioned is a really big deal, not so much because it might freeze, but. Because you're sweating out, you know all of your hydration, all of your fluids, all of your electrolytes. And so if you're moving faster than you need to and sweating profusely, it just means you're getting behind the hydration curve, which can be really dangerous in the mountains. So I, I think that mountaineering, especially in the big mountains, is just a constant game of self-care and being really aware of, you know, for example, when I was climbing um, Everest near the summit, the toes on my right foot were starting to get cold and it was still dark out. um, Many, many hours of climbing left. And I had to constantly wiggle them. And I told myself that if I could ever not wiggle them, that I was going to turn around because no mountain is worth my toes or fingers. So it's very, you know, continually monitoring how you're feeling and what you're doing and having a plan to address it if things go wrong. Um, when I get cold, you know, climbing in the Cascades, I will tell myself that I will, um, if I notice I'm cold, I will keep going for 20 minutes. And if, you know, and I figure if that that's enough to maybe get my heart rate up, if nothing changes, then it's time for me to come up with a new game plan and to reassess what I'm doing. So the, the plan becomes a really important part of that equation.
0: I I, I can only imagine. Now, are you also busy? <laughs> I'm a, I'm a competitive when I was playing football or playing baseball, I would be competitive and stuff, but you can't do that. Cause you have to, you have to actually kind of go within yourself and go and keep track of yourself and not worry about if somebody else is going faster than you. Is that, is that true?
1: Yeah. So that's a very astute observation, Kevin, because you know, most people who climb are competitive, right? We, we're right. ambitious, we're probably successful in other areas of our lives. Um, we naturally compare ourselves to other people. And this is a very important point that I uh, really hit on with the people that I coach because that competition is not going to help you in the mountains. In fact, it's only going to hurt you. Um, I've seen so many people Put on day one, cl- even climbing Rainier, push too hard, totally flag out, and then not be able to have enough reserves to climb the next day. And so it's, it's constantly sort of putting that ego and that competitiveness in check. I like to think of it as it is just me in the mountain. It does not matter what anyone else is doing. Um, you know, sort of notwithstanding me needing to be, to help someone who's on my rope team, of course, but like in terms of just how I'm moving and, you know, the whole sort of goal of climbing, it's, it's just me in the mountain. And I try to put all that other sort of junk outside of, outside of my mind, because it also burns energy. And I like, when I'm climbing, I like to consider that I have, I have this, you know, a reserve of energy all day. This is as much as I'm going to get. And what am I going to do with it? I do not want to be, you know, getting wound up about why Nick is chewing with his mouth open in the dining tent because it's not going to help me at all.
0: <laughs> I can only imagine that there would be times when people oh, yeah. are annoying as hell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, you're, when you're doing that. But I have also been told that uh, climbing a mountain because you're within yourself, it's you the mountain and nature that it's a very spiritual experience
1: it is yeah it absolutely is and i didn't i didn't realize that until i was describing climbing to someone years ago and they said it sounds like you were it was a walking meditation and it just made me realize like oh my gosh i think it really is this sort of spiritual experience um which you know is part of what draws me to big mountains Um, There's this sense of just really being at one and at peace with nature. And I think that that's part of why I like to sort of feel into this relationship that I have with the mountains I climb. Um, You know, often you are in the dark, sort of head down by yourself and everything else is gone right? There's no cell phone, there's no garbage to take out, there's, you know, no homework to do. And, and in terms of like your sensory perception, too, it's, it's just this tiny little headlamp of light, tiny little ring of headlamp light. And that's all that you can see. And so it becomes, it sort of draws you inside, I think, and forces many people, myself, for sure, to really just have this sort of sense of peace with how my body's moving in nature
0: it, it would be a fascinating ex- experience to do that if you were in shape for it and stuff because it, it, you're right it would be like a meditation
1: yeah it really is
0: the most unique meditation you've ever had
1: <laughs> i don't know if anyone's going to open up a meditation center on the top of Mount everest but <laughs> <laughs>
0: probably Maybe. not you know and one of these I, and I hope you put it in your book now is the book written and is, is being edited now
1: yeah so it's written we're just wrapping up the proofread this week um the digital advanced reader copies are available we'll have printed versions of that in a couple of weeks and it will be launched in bookstores and available digitally on january 10th of next year
0: so so i hope you put in there some of the some of the logistical nightmares that have to go with that like oh yeah like, what happens and, and I, yeah, we don't need to talk about it here but it just as a, as, a, as a question what happens when you have to go number two at twenty two thousand yeah. feet yeah. yeah
1: yeah that's in there you can read the book and find out oh good uh, <laughs> also also commentary as a woman like getting your period at twenty six thousand feet not really fun to deal with either um so all of those things are in there for those of you that are curious enough i will just say it's sort of like High altitude gymnastics. I can only
0: imagine. I can only imagine. By the way, we're talking with Lisa Thompson, and uh, she is an amazing woman in anybody's book. She's the second American woman to climb K two. Uh, she's climbed Everest. She's climbed. She's climbed almost everything that's worth climbing, and she's she's a and you're a lot of fun to talk to. And I thank you for for being here. Yeah, my uh, pleasure. Thanks, Kevin. Is there anything else you, you would like? I, I'll tell you what, um, I want set, to set aside and get let you have a couple of moments to tell our audience anything that you would like them to know uh-huh. about now or in the future.
1: So let me, I like to talk about finding my voice. This is something that I spoke to uh, in the book and something that um, took me a long time as a female mountaineer to do. Um, I was just listening to another podcast of a female mountaineer and there's just so few of us, it's gotten better. Um, but when I started climbing, I was often the only girl on my team. In fact, I almost called my book, the only girl. Um, and that caused me to not use my own voice. It caused me to often go along with things that didn't feel quite right to me. And there was a moment when I was descending K2. Um, so I had just summited and I was at a point in the mountain where it is just steep ice, like blue ice, um, very dense. And it happened to be, happens to be the point on the mountain where the most people have died, have fallen and died. And I knew that. And when I got there that day, um, sort of standing on the precipice of this ice face and, Um, there are two ropes there. One is meant to ascend and one is meant to descend. And I'm going down. So I walk over to the rope to descend and there's someone laying on it. Someone had decided to use it to go up instead of down and had gotten fatigued and just laying there on the ice. And um, in that moment, my uh, friend and expedition leader, Garrett Madison said to me, "I I think you need to descend. And he described this method called arm wrapping, which I had done hundreds of times. Um, it isn't, it is not the most secure way to descend a big mountain. And, um, it just didn't feel right to me. It just didn't. And this is a man who I've climbed with for years, who knows me and my capability, who I've trust implicitly. And I just said no to him. I just said, I'm not doing that today because it doesn't feel right for me. Um, and in hindsight, having to you know sort of untangle with this this man, unfortunately laying on the rope, who survived. He was fine. Um, he was just incredibly tired. Um, and you know, getting past him was a whole sequence of me building anchors and securing myself, and then moving my gear to uh, the the rope between he and I, and then building another anchor, and moving it again. And so it was a very delicate dance uh, in the most dangerous part of that mountain. And if I had had descended a different way, I wouldn't have had, you know, the gear or the, I wouldn't have been in the same position to really safely get around him. And so my sort of my mantra these days is to to find your voice and to use it because that's when you're authentically you. Um and that's what makes us all beautiful and unique and positive.
0: I love that. Thank you very much.
1: You're so you're welcome.
0: <clears throat> thank you very much for saying that that's 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 really cool because you know you are your best person to to determine what you're capable of and what you're going to do and what you're not going to do yes. and uh, yes. i believe that the inspiration that comes to you in those moments is from above and it's from a different place
1: yeah
0: and it is people that are looking out after you uh because yes. they want to see you succeed
1: yeah so. absolutely
0: So your book again is coming in January. I'm so looking forward to it. And the name of the book again is
1: Finding Elevation.
0: Finding Elevation and and the subtitle can be Finding Your Voice.
1: The subtitle is actually Fear and Courage on the World's Deadliest Mountain.
0: Uh that and that would be both of those I would have. Yes. Um but I wouldn't be on the deadliest mountain, so I wouldn't have a lot of that. So (laughs) but i appreciate you uh lisa for being here and uh and i like i said i'm gonna have you on uh kknw and and we'll redo this um during the course of the summer sometime whenever we're through your schedule because i imagine you are a busy person where 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 are you going to climb next
1: so the next climb i have is actually i have two climbs in july uh in the Cascades, so shucks and baker And then I'll probably sneak a Rainier climb in there somewhere this summer. It's my goal to always get up that mountain every summer. And then I'll be headed to Nepal to climb in the Himalaya in
0: October. I can tell you that uh, just by the way you said that, I'm going to sneak in a climb a Mount Rainier. You know, there are people who spend six months to a year of trying to get into the type of shape to do. And you're just going to sneak off one day and go climb the mountain that's pretty amazing well not
1: to take anything away from anyone it's it was it's always been a challenging mountain for me it's always very fun though um and i love that it's so close and easy to climb if it's if the weather's good
0: absolutely and and we have got some of the best weather uh, but uh, i've also seen times when it can be clear everywhere else and the uh mountain is shrouded in in uh clouds as well absolutely yeah, you have to be careful thank yeah. you so much for being here and and if you'll wait right there i will be right back and uh stuff okay Sorry. thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end please give us a like and subscribe to this channel this has been a production of kmmedia.pro please visit our website oddly enough named kmmedia.pro for more details about us and our mission which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to each other because each other's all we've got. We'll see you next time.